Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 49. It's the first half of 1981 and more hit-and-run raids were being carried out by Swapu, particularly around Okolonga and Mahaneni. Some of the frustrations concerning the quality of intel were proving difficult to explain away by the SADF. For example, early on the morning of the 21st of January, six 14-man teams from 3-2 Battalion were airlifted into Angola to within one and a half kilometers of the suspected Swapo base at Dongrena. The intelligence info was wrong. The base was two kilometers south of that position and by the time they hit it, there was no one at home. And worse, the base wasn't Swapo's, it was Fapla's, the Angolan army, which 3-2 was told to leave alone. The troops found paraphernalia in the trenches proving they were in the wrong place. Just then, a young boy was spotted wandering around and he told the troops that there was a Swapo base nearby but it was further southwest. That information was accurate. It took a child wandering around the sandy southern Angolan plains to provide intel to 3-2 Battalion, a rather embarrassing fact. When 3-2 arrived at the base, it was empty, but showed signs of being hastily evacuated with plates of food still on the table. Colonel Ferreira was scratching his head about what to do next. After redeploying his forces once more and then moving his tactical HQ back to Ombaluntu, he handed over Operation Fastrap, as it was known to Commandant James Hills. The Swapo base in the vicinity of Kaluku Dam was still a mystery when Operation Fastrap was called off eventually in March. The early months of 1981 were characterized by a series of operations inside Angola of various sizes. Three two battalion and one parachute battalion were busy most of the time, and it was apparent that Papla was growing increasingly aggressive. The Angolan Air Force as well were showing signs of life. Their training appeared to be improving. Pretoria's policy remained one of avoidance when it came to FAPLA, unless the SADF was under direct attack. This, as I've said, created challenges for commanders in the field. It was difficult to identify the one from the other at times, as the comments earlier in this episode reveal. The situation prevailing along the southwest African-Angolan border was intolerable. Escalation expanded into areas where there had been previously no swampo activity and the intensity of the attacks increased. Former SAF Force Commander Brigadier General Dick Lord points out in his book From Fledgling to Eagle that Defence Force capabilities and resources were being stretched unnecessarily and Swapo was using the logistics and protection of FAPLA in order to approach the border with relative impunity. But the SADF had limited resources in equipment and manpower so it was not going to be possible to sweep this area clean. There was a 1.2 metre high four-strand wire fence which basically stretched the distance from Brussels to Milan. As Lord points out, had NATO deployed all their forces in Europe along this fence between these two cities, they would not have been able to stop people crossing from one side to the other. So what chance did the SADF have? The problem in Southwest Africa was also the dense bush and visibility, which dropped to 30 meters or less when you were on the ground. After each wave of Swapo attacks, the security forces would apply different tactics deploying more ground troops often by using more vehicles or helicopters and then improving armaments. But by early 1981, SADF top brass had decided that the thinly spread security forces were no longer cost effective. Too much time and money was being expended in non-stop patrols with too little to show for it. Swapo was also gaining the advantage and in military terms, when that happens, the enemy's confidence surges and its activities increase. A defensive tactic by the SADF had to change to offensive. They couldn't just patrol waiting to bump into a landmine or booby trap or swap a stick. 
They also couldn't just rely on a few hundred members of 3-2 Battalion and the Reckies to do this either. General Yanni Heldenhuis and his replacement, Major General Charles Lloyd, were trying to deny the guerrillas freedom of movement within what became known as the shallow area of Angola. That was the strip of land adjacent to the border and stretching 50 kilometers into Angola. In terms of deciding to invade Angola again, Pretoria's political leaders believed that international law was on their side because it prohibits host countries from allowing incursions from their territories into those of international neighbours. But of course, Pretoria was also allowing 3-2 Battalion to launch incursions into Angola, but these were plausibly deniable. So they convinced themselves that international law was on their side and began planning the massive Operation Pretoria, one of the biggest invasions of Angola carried out by the SADF in the entire 23-year war. But first, Operation Carnation, which involved 3-2 Battalion, was launched in June 1981 and continued all the way until Ops Protea in August with the aim of pushing Swapo out of the southern areas across the cut line. I did cover some of the incidents related to Operation Carnation in previous podcasts. And remember, this took place in the first few months of 1981. So there was a cat-and-mouse game going on by this stage. On the 10th of July 1981, 3-2's Foxtrot Company, operating along what Swapo called the Central Front Headquarters, uncovered a cache containing 4,000 kilograms of canned food. On the 11th of July, 3-2's Alpha Company attacked the Northern Front logistics base two kilometers northeast of Onjiva, killing four enemy and capturing a large pile of equipment. Swapo, though, had the SADF movements under close scrutiny and avoided being caught. Each time 3-2 began to move, Swapo was informed. They kept one step ahead of the patrols and avoided ambushes while moving steadily towards Fapla at Mongua and Onjiva. The situation changed radically on the 7th of August when Fapla columns emerged from the shadows to face the South Africans head-on. The first confrontation was with members of 5 Reconnaissance Regiment, which was deployed around 20 kilometers west of Anjiva on the main road to Kuamato. Two enemy vehicles were hit by an ambush. Then the South Africans dug in for a possible counter-attack, which took place later that night. Fapla returned to recover their dead and were attacked in the dark. The Rekis took out three BTR-60 armored cars, but a five-Reki member was killed. Then the South Africans learned that Fapla had ordered all ops-trained troops to report to Namakunde, with their automatic weapons. The Rekis were told by the local population that Fapla was also at Dover, which is northeast of Anjiva, on the main road to Kaundo. They appear to be gearing up for something quite big. In mid-August, more contacts took place near Chiedi, but each firefight led to Swapo beating a hasty retreat in the direction of the nearest Fapla base. And thus, the move to Operation Pratia which would turn into the largest ground assault by South Africans of the entire border war. The cooperation between Swapo and Fapla had to be broken. Both used the same logistics routes, so the SATF needed to destroy the communication lines across the Kuneni River. To do that, Major General Lloyd approached Constant Pelun and suggested a large force be sent into Angola to destroy the combined Fapla-Swapo strongpoints at Sangongo, Mongua and Onjiva. Not all South African officers were entirely happy about this. For example, 3-2 Battalion's Commandant Dion Ferreira had a cordial relationship with Fapla's commander at Onjiva, Major Alfonso Maria. He sent a letter to Major Maria previously, thanking him for his cooperation and warning him to stay out of 3-2's way. Now he was going to be part of a massive attack on 
on Jiva itself. Meanwhile, Sangonga's Fapla commander was much more aggressive and was harassing SADF patrols constantly. Swapo and Fapla's logistics system was fully integrated at Zangongo, along with their defensive positions. Lloyd wanted direct attacks on these positions, but it wasn't going to be easy. More than 4,000 SADF troops took part in Ops Protea, which was a very complex undertaking involving many moving parts of the SADF equation. It was a mechanized operation, and as we spend time over the next few episodes looking into the op in great detail, I will try and simplify these strands. The man who was going to lead the South Africans into this major undertaking was Brigadier Rudolf Wittkop Badenost. He was officer commanding Sector 10 in northern Southwest Africa, with his HQ at Oshakati. There were three main task forces, Alpha, Bravo and Charlie, and each was about a brigade in strength. Charlie was a support brigade, and it wasn't involved in the fighting per se, but focused on counterinsurgency in the north of Southwest Africa. Bravo was under the command of Colonel Fos Bernardi and was going to spend most of the coming weeks focusing on what was called Area Tango, Eastern Kuneni Province. So it was that Task Force Alpha was the main assault brigade, comprised of a mixed mechanized and motorized infantry force under the command of Colonel Yup Yubei. His fellow officers admired his detail-driven approach to planning, and even Jan Breitenbach, who was notoriously direct and did not suffer fools, thought that Yobei was a good leader. Alpha was broken down into four battle groups. Up to now, in major ops, the SADF had used the phrase combat group, but they switched. I guess that was because this was such a large undertaking. Battle group 10203040, and a fifth called the Pathfinder group. Commandant Roland de Vries, who you've heard from already in this series, led battle group 10, which was basically 61 mech battalion, of an infantry company in Rattles, a parachute company on board Biffles, an armoured car squadron, a mortar platoon, a troop of 140mm artillery and a combat engineer troop. The Fries also had a reserve of one Rattle 20 company and a Rattle 90 troop from the anti-tank division. Battle Group 2-0, of which I was part, was led by Commandant Johann Udipi Stipanov. He had led 61 mech during Operation Skeptic and it was one of the more powerful organisations to mobilise featuring two motorised infantry companies in Buffels, a mechanised infantry company in Rattle 20s, two extra motorised infantry platoons, two armoured car squadrons featuring Rattle 90s and Elan 90s as well as Elan 60s, a 140mm artillery battery and a combat engineer troop. So Battle Group 2-0 was specifically created for Pretier and disbanded straight after the op. Battle Group 3-0 was led by Commandant Chris Serpentine, and included three motorized infantry companies in Biffles, an armored car squadron of Elant 90s, a 120mm mortar battery and 81mm mortar platoon, and a combat engineer platoon. Dion Ferreira led Battle Group 4-0, basically a 3-2 battalion group. It included three motorized infantry companies on board Biffles, an armored car squadron of Elant 90s, a battery of 120mm mortars, a combat engineer troop, and four anti-tank teams. They were going to be very busy. The final group was the Pathfinder Company, which was going to operate independently, led by Captain Andreas Ruiz Feltesen, and made up of mostly 44 Parachute Brigade. Lurking nearby, alongside them, was Jan Breitenbach, who ended up joining this Pathfinder Company for the ride, he said later. I must also tell you 
that a few other unlisted people were involved. One was a highly experienced small elite unit I met at Onjiva Airport a few weeks later. They were mainly Vietnam veterans, former Green Berets, who were acting as what we called operators, and they were not officially involved with the SADF. They didn't officially exist. But they were there, being paid by someone, and I'm sure one of the listeners will have more information about these folks. I drank a few beers with these Vietnam vets. One had a PhD in philosophy from a prestigious American university, and I tried to connect his daily life of soldiering with his previous life as an American academic. That was difficult. So the South Africans had a few other surprises for the Angolans. For the first time, an artillery troop was equipped with 127mm Valkyrie Multiple Rocket Launchers, or MRLs. When I drove past this weapon for the first time inside Angola, I thought they were captured Stalin's organs from the Second World War being used by Fapla. Until they began to fire towards Fapla lines, then the penny dropped. As soldiers know, I guess the Russians are finding this out the hard way in Ukraine, you're always the last to know when it comes to all sorts of things. The MRL manufactured in South Africa was very successful, although there were only a few available by the time of Ops Protea. Everything about this assault was going to involve power, not least when it came to aviation. It was the largest concentration of planes and other aerial vehicles gathered together by South Africa since the Second World War. There were 33 mirages of various types, F1AZs, F1CZs, 3CZs, 3D2Zs, 16 Impalas, 5 Buccaneers and 5 Canberras. The SADF also deployed an unmanned aerial vehicle, UAV, for the very first time. Photo reconnaissance would be carried out by 1 Canberra, 3 Mirages and 2 Impalas. And then for fire support troop movements as well as backup, they'd use 19 Alouette gunships and troopers, 17 Pumas and 2 Super Frelons. 8 Kudu aircraft would fly in communication links and relays, and then seven Dakotas, along with three C-160s and 130 Hercules, were available for paratroopers, transport, resupply, and propaganda pamphlet dropping, as well as 11 light Bosboks deployed as spotters. The light aircraft would be very useful in navigation, recon, and for telecoms backup. Now all of this was going to cost a packet. The SA Air Force launched Operation Knife at the same time as Protea, with the aim of providing electronic warfare support to its forces. It'd be a ground comms intelligence or comment team at Rokana working with the ECM-equipped aircraft to build up an assessment of enemy radar and air defences. The Air Force had their own objectives, which included the disruption of Angola's Air Force and Swapo air defence systems in the south-central theatre. They were particularly interested in the installations at Chibemba and Kahama and would carry out these attacks independently of Protea's ground forces. The high-level objectives were to neutralize Swapo's military force in southern Angola between the Kuneni and Kavanga rivers in order to make their movement inside Southwest Africa more difficult. Three main bases were targeted at Humbe, Zangongo and Onjiva. As you've heard, Plan's operational HQ was at Zangongo while their logistics center was at Onjiva. Still, the orders continued to emphasize avoiding fighting FAPLA. The SADF order said not to attack any FAPLA positions or troops unless they interfered and the safety of our own forces were thus threatened. How the top brass thought this was possible is beyond me. By the time we ended up inside Angola, I didn't see many Swapo soldiers during Ops Protea. It was all about FAPLA. 
All the POWs we treated were Fapla. The dead lying about the streets were all Angolan army. We would also meet Cubans and Russians. But Swapo? They were thin on the ground. Before unleashing this mighty force, the SADF needed to soften things up a bit and on the 21st of August 1981 launched Operation Koinen, or Rabbit. This was basically a mobilization op getting all the battle groups to Oshikongo. Some of us had been conducting maneuvers for weeks around Oshivelo close to Itoshapan. I was living inside one of the ammunition dumps, which we always thought was a curious place to make the ops medics camp one RPG later, and we'd be vaporized, but I suppose that meant no medics required. Waiting for us inside Angola were Fapla's 2nd Division in Kuneni province, with its headquarters in Lubango. Swapo's HQ was also there. The division had six brigades, at least. That was what the SADF intelligence highlighted. Three were stationed close enough to pose a major threat to the South Africans. 21 Brigade was at Kahama and was thought to be a mobile reserve and the Rekis would keep a close eye on their movements. 19 Brigade was stationed inside Zangongo and Piu Piu and 11 Brigade at Onjiva. It was the Zangongo force that had the most teeth. Farplay had two infantry battalions, a tank company with T-34s, an armoured car squadron using BGR-23s, an artillery battery, three 122mm rocket launchers, seven anti-aircraft guns, which we know by now were potent weapons against ground forces, and a planned infantry force. Many of the defenders were inside reinforced concrete bunkers, and the bulk of the defences were facing south. And this was Plan and Swapo's biggest mistake in upcoming battles. They were being attacked from their rear, particularly at Onjiva, and no concrete bunker can save you when the enemy is inside your defensive position. The SADF units were arranged south of the border, and at first there was an attempt to convince anyone stumbling across our large camps of Battle Group 2-0 that we were conducting training or maneuvers. But a number of our units were injured and some were killed in live fire exercises, particularly one incident where troops lying beneath trees alongside a rattle were hit by a high explosive shell that was blasted into a branch by mistake. Word began to circulate that this massive build-up must be linked to an inevitable invasion. It's hard to hide live fire going on alongside a main road, even in an area where travel was tightly controlled. So, in the light of the massive SADF force living along the south of the border, the planners of Operation Pratia were hoping for tactical surprise. Both Fapla and Swapo knew there was an attack coming. They knew it was probably going to target Zangongo and Onjiva, amongst other towns, but from which direction? And that was the big surprise. First, it was decided that 3-2 Battalion would strike at Zangongo from the north, where the defenders were thinnest and the defences weakest. Two days later, at 1100 on the 23rd of August, the airstrikes began. First, Kahama was hit by two Canberras armed with four 450kg and 18 250kg bombs. Eight Mirages joined the attack armed with 30 missiles, and so did two Buccaneers, which were also armed with missiles. A few minutes later, two more Canberras, two Buccaneers and 16 Mirage F1s armed with Mark 82 bombs attacked the radar installations at Chibemba, although they faced heavy flak from SA-7s. At 1600 hours, five Canberras hit Kahama again. Then a few hours later, they bombed the transport depot northeast of the town. Meanwhile, Rekis were already in place across the border monitoring enemy movement on the ground between Kahama and Zangongo. 
At 0300 hours on the 24th of August, Battle Group 1-0 led the way moving from Ruakana towards Kaluki, then northwards following the west bank of the Kuneni River. That made navigation a little easier. Things were more difficult for 2-0, my battle group, as you're going to hear. At 3 hours 30, battle groups 2, 3 and 4-0 crossed the border at Beacon 16 and headed directly north. But this snaking column came to a sudden halt 12 kilometers northeast of Kumato when one of the 10-ton trucks detonated a mine. It was thick bush and a dark night, the dust making things even more difficult. The biffles were moving slowly, far slower than the rattles, and the schedule was recalibrated. By 10 hours 30, the force was 10 kilometers east of Zangongo, awaiting the air attack. At 11 hours 05, eight impalas hit Piu Piu and Humbe, knocking out the anti-aircraft guns. Minutes later, the artillery opened up and fired a 20-minute barrage with the 140mm G2 guns and the 127mm MRLs. Then, at 12 hours 39, ground troops moved on the targets. 1-0 was aiming at Humbe, 4-0 was focused on the center of Zangongo, and 2-0 targeted the southern suburbs, so to speak. Meanwhile, Battle Group 3-0 headed off to Piu Piu. What happened next is for next episode. Right now, we need to stop and check for anti-personnel mines. Just a quick shout-out to Michael Buster, who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, who hosts the Forgotten Wars podcast and has asked me to promote a series on wars like the Boer Bagananwa War. So search for Forgotten Wars podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, and almost anywhere podcasts are provided. Please head over to my website, AB War Podcast. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, Khraziva Ukrainian.